0: All right, we're going to be back in Exodus 32, but before we begin, let's, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, so grateful that you are our Heavenly Father, that you love us and that you want to hear from us, and we want to hear from you, Lord. We want to know from your word how you want us to live, and from this message today, how you want us to pray. Do not allow us to leave here the same as when we arrived. Speak to us through your word. Amen. Amen. So as I've been doing, going through, working through Exodus, we're in Exodus 32. And where we are is that Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights meeting with God. He has heard God's law. He's written down God's word. He's seen the plans for God's holy tabernacle. And now it's time for the prophet to go back down. And I mean, after all Moses has seen and heard and experienced. I mean, can you only imagine the unfathomable joy that that he is experiencing as he anticipates taking the tablets, God's commands back down the mountain, hand delivering these Ten Commandments to the people and revealing the will of God. Uh, And then God says, Moses, uh, we need to talk. There's something going on. I hate to tell you this, but while you've been gone, there's been some problems down there and you need to know what's going on. And then God broke the news that while the two of them had been drawing up plans for a new sanctuary for the tabernacle, well, the Israelites had decided to make some plans of their own. At that very moment, under the direction of the associate shepherd, they were offering ungodly worship to an unholy cow. God saw how the people were sinning, as he always does, And as far as he was concerned, it was up to Moses to do something about it. Because here's what it says in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. And sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume, consume them in order that I may make great nation from you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say what evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall have it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. We come to this and we see the Israelites are in big trouble something had gone badly wrong here moses had only been gone a few weeks and already the people have turned away from god and the lord basically levels a six-fold indictment against them they've corrupted themselves they've turned aside quickly they have made for themselves a golden calf they've worshipped the golden calf they've sacrificed to the golden calf. They said to the golden calf. These are the gods. That brought you out of Israel. And then notice what the Lord says to Moses. I have seen this stiff necked people. They have turned aside quickly. And it's almost saying. And he says these are your people. I mean it's almost like. You go take care of them. It kind of reminded, you, reminded me on first reading. It's like. One parent saying, that is your child. You go take, you go take care of them." But, but that's really not what it means. It's not where the Lord, in a moment of agitation and frustration and irritation, says, I don't want anything to do with them." But rather, it's really a powerful way of saying what is, in fact, the truth. You see, they had said and claimed now that the golden calf was their God. They were looking to the golden calf for deliverance. They worshiped it as God. They sacrificed to it as a savior. So clearly they did not hold Yahweh to be their God now. And so God was making a true statement. They're not looking to me anymore as God. These are your people now. It's not that God was fickle. The people were fickle. He's the one who had heard their cries and had raised up a deliverer when they were in Egypt. He's the one who had hardened the Pharaoh's heart. He's the one who had sent the plagues. He's the one who had parted the Red Sea. He's the one who had drowned the Egyptians. He's the one who had provided manna and quail to them in the wilderness. He's the one who had met them at Mount Sinai. He's the one who had given them the law. He's the one who had appointed a tabernacle where his presence would dwell. And after all of this, like little children, at the first sign of delay, they made an idol. Have you ever had... The experience where your child, or maybe you know the experience, they, they're unwrapping a Christmas present. And they're wrapping papers barely thrown away. And they're asking, how long is it till my birthday? <laughs> or the day after Christmas, they hand you a piece of paper and say, here's what I want for my birthday. Now that I know what I've got for Christmas, here's what I want for my birthday. You know, little do they realize... That every day they're getting stuff from their parents. Just like every day we get stuff from the Lord. We're provided for every day. But you see the Israelites had not just slipped up a little. I mean they had rejected God outright. You've got to see something here. This The Exodus in one way is kind of a new creation, a recreation that God is claiming for himself. Uh, If you think about this, God says he was forming a new people. He was giving them a new land. He was giving them a new law. In this event, the worship of the golden calf is a new fall for the people. But you see, the golden calf... It's what made sense to them. They couldn't break out of their traditions. They couldn't break out of what was comfortable for them. I mean, it's strange to us because we don't (coughs) worship statues. Of course, in our day and age, we tear them down, but uh, that's a (laughs) different story. It made sense to them because this is how the Egyptians depicted the gods and worshipped them. And this is what the Israelites had seen for hundreds of years. You see, these Israelites may have belonged to Yahweh, but they behaved like the Egyptians. And this golden calf, it was probably a representation of the Egyptian bull god Apis. And Apis was sometimes an intermediary between humans and other powerful deities. And so it's understandable (coughs) for them to think we will make this golden calf. We don't know where Moses is. We can't see him, but we can create a calf to worship. Now, the, the, the cult surrounding the Egyptian bull god Apis, I mean, this was immensely popular in Egyptian times. This bull symbolized strength, courage, fertility, the fighting spirit of the pharaohs. So why wouldn't they make a God with that type of symbolism? You see, never underestimate the ways that we are constantly influenced and shaped by the world around us. This is what had happened to them. Uh, I mean, for most of us. It's not that the devil comes or that worldliness comes in a very bold and just outspoken fashion and says, now I'm going to convince you that the Bible is not true. Now I'm going to convince you that prayer really doesn't work. Now I'm going to convince you that you should start behaving like the rest of the world. You know, Satan doesn't come and say it like that. It's almost... In the air we breathe, living in the world that we live in, that we're constantly bombarded in very subtle ways so that it makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. You know, it comes through earbuds it comes from watching tv or 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 movies that the world we have to be mindful from you know early ages until 80 and beyond that the world is constantly attempting to reorient our view of what is normal if we're honest about it uh you think in the 60s and 70s, historically, that's really how the sexual revolution happened. Today, this is how wokeness is happening or critical race theory even coming into the church. Very subtle, very, very subtle ways. The mindset changes and your worldview changes as to what is now normal. And so this golden calf Seemed normal to the Israelites. And and God said to them. Now keep in mind. These were his chosen people. These were a holy nation. These were his treasured possession. His royal priesthood. But now he gives them a new name. Stiff-necked people. You see the Israelites were no longer worthy to be called the people of God but to be disowned and destroyed. I don't know if any of you have ever slept on a pillow the wrong way and woke up with a with a stiff neck. Henry was struggling with that uh, earlier this week. But, you know, when you have a stiff neck, it's hard to look in any other direction than the way that your neck is, is locked in. You can only see one way, and that's what God means to you. You can't see things another way. You have blinders on. The Lord says, so when I call to you, you do not turn. I mean, it's a horrible, but yet perfect description of the human predicament. And it's the first of many times that this description is used of God's people in the Old Testament. Stephen uses it in his sermon in Acts 7, calling them stiff-necked people. It's used to refer to animals that refuse their master's yoke. They refuse the yoke. And without the yoke, they can't be guided or directed as to where they can go. They are stiff-necked. And that's people who never learn. People who never listen. These are people who never admit mistakes. Never change. Don't listen to counsel. They have a perpetual stubbornness problem but they think it's everyone else who has the problem. Yeah, it's The more stiff ne- stiff-necked a person is, the less likely they are to think that they're stiff-necked at all. And it's an interesting problem because those who really aren't stiff-necked, they're probably thinking, oh boy, I really need to consider this. I need to examine my heart. Maybe I need to ask a friend if I'm stiff-necked. And then they're the ones who are praying, Lord, will you help me with this? But the stiff-necked people sit there and go, hmm, this has been a, a, a nice sermon that I've heard. Maybe I should send it off to somebody else. It would do them good to hear it. You know, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.7, Paul talks about how there are people who are always learning. But never able to arrive. At the knowledge of truth. Stiff-necked people. You see the Israelites. And it it just kind of boggles my mind. The Israelites had been the recipients. Of immense blessing. Deliverance. Provision. The law. The covenant. (coughs) The ark. The tabernacle. Priests. And yet now they turn to a golden calf. And I think God quite justifiably was ready to unleash his anger and destroy the whole lot of them and start over with Moses you know I said it was a new kind of creation a new kind of fall and <coughs> potentially a new kind of flood remember God said to Noah, Noah I have one righteous family I'm wiping everybody else off the face of the earth, and I'm starting over with you. And what does God say to Moses? I'm going to destroy them, and I will start over with you. And God had every right to do so. But if you know the book of Exodus, you know that isn't what happens. By the time we get to chapter 35, we're back to the tabernacle. By the time we get to chapter 40, we have the presence of God inhabiting the tabernacle. How did things get back on track? How did the Israelites go from chapter 32 where they're basically all toast to chapter 35 with the tabernacle being built? What happened? Moses interceded. You see, even in the threat of judgment here, there were signs of God's grace. And it's important to see this because this is one of the passages that people will sometimes use <coughs> to argue that God changes his mind. And I'm here to tell you that that is a false teachme- teaching. That is a false statement. But this is one of the arguments that a group of people that would be called open theists. It's a dangerous doctrine that says that God does not know the future, but simply works things out as he goes along. And on the surface, it may look like a valid way to understand Exodus 32. Because you go, first God decided to destroy the Israelites, then he decided not to. But scripture tells (coughs) us this. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Out of 1 Samuel. And as we study, Pardon? 1 Samuel 15, 29. And so if we dig in just a little bit deeper, we discover that God's will is settled here as well as it is settled anywhere. Because it was never God's purpose to destroy the Israelites. But only to save them. Even ha- even as he threatened wrath. There were hints that he would show mercy. First was the simple fact that God commanded Moses to go down. <coughs> if God had really intended to destroy the Israelites. One, why tell Moses? And why send him down to begin with at all? So the answer is. Is that God was planning to save them through the intercession of a mediator? The Israelites had not sinned themselves outside of the grace of God. God was sending Moses to pray for their forgiveness. I mean, think about it if the Lord, in a moment of anger, had decided to wipe out the Israelites, why? Tell Moses what he's doing. And it was really a rhetorical invitation to Moses to intercede. We see other examples of this. And in Amos chapter 7, God's telling the people, this is what I'm going to do to you. Here are the punishments that are coming. And basically God is saying in a rhetorical sense, do you want this to happen? Do you want this to come upon you? Intercede. And when Jonah preaches to Nineveh, 40 days and you will be overturned. But the real invitation is, get on your knees and pray. Humble yourselves. Confess. And you see, so Moses was being driven by God himself to intercede. Remember what God said. He said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And there is a sense in which they were Moses' people. Moses was their spiritual representative before God. So if anybody was going to do anything to help them, it would be Moses. But catch the irony here. Although the people had tried to disown Moses, remember they said, Where's Moses? We haven't seen him in a while. Although they had tried to disown Moses, Moses was the only one that God had chosen to be the mediator. Moses was the only one who could intercede and save them. But you see, the biggest hint about God's ultimately gracious purpose for Israel we see in verse 10. Where he attaches a condition to the threat. Now leave me alone or let me alone. That my wrath may burn hot against them. And that I may consume them. You see this doesn't mean that God can't control his temper. It doesn't mean that God just saying get out of my way. Leave me alone. I'm going to. My judgment's going to burn hot against them. No. What it means is that God is open in the way. He's given the invitation to Moses as the mediator to stand between God and his people. And as Moses stands as mediator between God and his people, God will not proceed to punish Israel. You see, under what circumstances? Would God destroy Israel and start back over with Moses? Only if the mediator stopped praying for his people. And so God was pushing Moses to get involved. To intercede for his people. Of course knowing that he would. And he did intercede. But as we walk through this we've got to ask ourselves. Why? did Moses intercede are these patterns for us to follow in our own prayer life and that's really what I want to take a look at so why did Moses intercede well first he was burdened for others he cared for his fellow Israelites and he didn't want to see them destroyed that's pretty obvious but think about this how, how Moses had matured Since the first time God had called him at the burning bush, Moses has gone from saying, I can't do it. Who shall I say has sent me? I need some signs. I need some miracles. What if they don't believe me? I don't speak very well. See, Moses had gone from that to the point now where he has come to accept his role as their deliverer, as their mediator, as their leader. You know, he could have been a new nation unto himself. Because God said, I will make a great nation of you. But Moses turned it down. In order to plead for the lives of his fellow countrymen. Given the choice between serving himself. And saving others. He put others first. This is the mark. Of a true man of God. A true person of God. They choose God's greater glory. Over their own personal good. Catch me there. This is a man or woman of God. They choose God's greater glory. Over their own personal good. A big part. Of interceding for others. Is learning how to care about people. It's a way of loving your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> you know, the, I know that I don't intercede for others as much as I should by a long shot. But I can tell you that the times that I have in my own life when I felt the drive to intercede is when I felt other people's burdens. But if you don't ever feel the burdens of family or friends. You're not likely to pray for them. You'll keep them at arm's length. But when we allow ourselves. To feel the burdens of others. We pray. Moses interceded. Because he was burdened. For his people. And second. He interceded because he believed that prayer changes things. Not change God, but change things. Almost like, like Abraham in Genesis 18, Moses believed that God might relent from the destruction of Israel. And that's why Moses says, it's, it's like without any hesitation, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with such great power and with a mighty hand. Moses was pleading with God because he believed in prayer. And you may ask, well, how does prayer change things when God is sovereign? Uh, I'll kind of get to that. We'll see that more in Exodus 33. In fact, one of God's absolute statements about his absolute sovereignty talks about that he is free to do whatever he pleases. Well, Jeremiah, this is a key one. Jeremiah 18, (coughs) verses 7 through 9. It says this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent from the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build it up and plant it. And it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice. Then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So here we have in this passage, the Lord stating his own operating principle. We already said God does not change his mind. But he says right here what he will do. He makes it explicit of what we see happened in Nineveh. Kind of implicit what's happening at Mount Sinai with the golden calf. That God, when God announces destruction, there is this implicit promise. But if you turn, if you pray, if you humble yourself. And at the same time, there's another implicit promise. If I'm building you up and you turn the other way. God has already determined of his own sovereign will that he will respond with mercy when we intercede. So that is his will. Psalm 106:23 talking about this whole situation said therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach to turn away his wrath from destroying him so trusting in God's sovereignty we believe that he can do whatever we ask of him and so we pray not in spite of providence but because of it. Now there, there are a couple of mistakes or errors that we can make. When we bring our petitions to God. The first one is not asking at all. And the second one is asking selfishly. You know the first error is really to think that God doesn't care. And that God does nothing. If you think a little bit more deeply, when you don't pray, you're basically saying God doesn't care and God can't answer my prayer. The second mistake or error is to think that God must do my will. Well, the answer is to ask boldly, but to surrender completely. Here's what Jesus's prayer was. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. And he says. Remove this cup from me. Yet. Not my will. But your will be done. So even. The beloved son. Submitted his will to the father. In an earthly sense. Jesus was asking boldly. Remove this cup from me. And yet he surrendered completely. Yet not my will but your will be done. Do you know what Jesus' most frequent teaching on prayer was? Ask. 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 Would you come to me? Would you ask? Philippians 4.6 records, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything brought by prayer and supplication... With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so Moses interceded. And let's look at how Moses interceded, because this is important. Verse 11 in our passage says that Moses implored the Lord. Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn so hot? With whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt these are your people so Moses interceded on the basis of adoption Moses was motivated by love for his fellow Israelites yes but when it came to petitioning God Moses didn't talk about how much better it would be for the Israelites he didn't say something like oh God we don't want them to feel bad we don't want to hurt their feelings his prayer was not based on what he thought would be nice for Israel. Understand that. His, he wasn't thinking about what he wanted for Israel. His prayer was based on much weightier matters. So Moses appealed to God based on the identity of these people as God's people. You know, in verse seven, Moses has said had said to, or God had said to Moses, "Get down there; these are your people." But here, Moses is saying to God, "God, these are your people. They may be rebellious idolaters. They may have rejected you. They may be grumbling, malcontents. But God, they are your people. You chose them. You brought them out of Egypt. You saved them." You delivered them. You see, he reminded God that the Israelites belonged to him by election and redemption. They were God's children. And nothing they could do could change that. It is impossible for any true child of God to sin his or her way out of the Father's love. That's an impossibility. This promise is for us as much as it was for the Israelites. Even if we sin as bad as the Israelites or worse, we are still God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my father's hands. And so when you pray for other people, Do you pray based on your own love for them? Or based on God's love for them? You know, thinking about those who do belong to God. I mean, it's easy to pray, oh Lord, how much I love this person. How much I want them to not be suffering. But do you pray, Lord, this is your adopted son or daughter. You love them much more than I do. Have mercy on them, O Lord, praying for God's great mercy on them because they are his chosen people. So Moses interceded based on God's adoption, based on his redemption, because that was their identity. And notice in verse 12, Moses interceded based on God's public reputation. Based on God's honor. Why should the Egyptians say. That he just brought them out of Egypt. With an evil intent to begin with. So that he could kill them on the mountains. The Egyptians were going to say. Oh look at this. So this is their sort of God. He does all this fancy. Shock and awe to get them out of Egypt. (coughs) Only to torture them. When they get to the mountain. So Moses asked God to save the people not for their sake only, but for the sake of God's good name. And if you remember, that's the whole reason that God saved them to begin with. It was so that the Egyptians would see God's glory. Now, I've I've heard estimates when it comes to praying that somewhere between 80 to 90% of our prayers of intercession are for health concerns, and yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. God wants us to bring our cares to Him. James five tells us to pray for the sick, <coughs> but I guess I would question or just ask that when we're praying for health, is it possible that we're giving little thought to how God figures into the equation? Don't take this the wrong way, but. But you don't need the Spirit of God to desire that sick people get well. I mean, in the world, nice people who aren't Christians want the sick people to get well. I think almost everyone on the planet would want sick people that they love to get better. So we should ask, how is this prayer for this sick person that I care for, how is this a Christian prayer and not just a worldly desire? Where is God in the prayer? I mean, not just in the doing of the request, but in the motivation of the request. We can draw our answer of what our motivation is even in the prayer should be from Moses because Moses says it is for your reputation. O God, it is for your honor. Save your wayward children. So Moses cared about God's reputation. He wanted to see God exalted among the nations. We should have that same motivation when we pray. You know, Maybe this is a way that you can start praying for a wayward person that you know. Wayward child. Someone who seemed to belong to Christ, but aren't living like it right now. You pray based on God's honor. (coughs) Lord, for the sake of your almighty name. This one who has claimed your name. This one who once called themselves Christian. Draw them to you again. Forgive them. Preserve them. Save their life. Lord, that your name will be praised. And your power and your mercy will be known. And so Moses prayed. Based on God's honor. But Moses saved his best argument for last. His final appeal was based on God's everlasting covenant. He says, remember Abraham, remember Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. And you said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses was now saying to God, remember your promise. Remember the patriarchs. Remember the promised land. And you see, this time, Moses was actually quoting God, appealing to God on the basis of his unbreakable promise. Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Jacob, they, we kind of read them, we're like, they must have been these mighty men. But they were ordinary men. Sinners, just like everyone else. But they did all have the promises of God. God had promised to make Abraham a great nation. He promised him land and seed. He repeated these promises to Isaac, to Jacob. And he had sworn to keep them by his very own self, as Moses has pointed out. God was bound by the promise of his covenant. And it was utterly impossible for him to go back on his word. So God had to save his people. So when we approach God. If we're trying to pattern our prayers. Our intercession to be like (coughs) this. When we approach God on the basis of his covenant. We have ultimate security. God has promised to everyone who comes through who comes to him through faith in Christ he's promised that we have been saved by the blood of an everlasting covenant by the blood that Christ shed on the cross and god cannot break that covenant i think that's a wonderful encouragement to anyone who has trouble believing that they can be forgiven God's promise to save us, not just now, but forever. Our salvation is not made secure by our own obedience, which just like the Israelites is bound to fail, but it's made secure by the unbreakable promise of God. Second Timothy says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. So you see, prayer is not about learning how to get God to give us the things we want. Prayer is about learning to ask God for the things he already wants to give us. And so notice here that something happens in this section in scripture for the first time. But it's not the last time. There's another example in the Bible of somebody interceding for sinful people. That happens before this. (coughs) Can you think of when that might have been? Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah pleading to God. He starts off pleading to God for 50 righteous people. Then 45 righteous people. God, would you, would you hold off on destroying the city if I can just find 45 righteous people? Yes, I would hold off from destroying the city. Abraham talks God all the way down to 10 people. God, would you hold off from destroying the city if there are even just 10 righteous people? Yes, for 10 righteous people, I would spare it. But, of course, there weren't even ten righteous people to be found. Lot and his family were delivered, but the rest were destroyed. So contrast that. Abraham pleading for righteous people. God, if there's only ten righteous people. So you see, Abraham was asking for righteous people. (coughs) But here we have Moses pleading for the guilty He did not try to minimize Israel's sin. He did not offer any excuses. He did not try to defend the people on the basis of their own merits. The Israelites, well, he didn't even argue that God's anger wasn't fair. On the contrary, he assumed that the Israelites were guilty. Even before he went down to see for himself. And based on that, he knew that God had every right to wipe them out. So you see, this makes Moses' prayer very different from the one that Abraham offered for Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham's promise was based on the premise that at least some people there were righteous. Moses didn't try to negotiate with God at all. He started with the assumption that none were righteous, not even one. He was not on the mountain to intercede for the innocent, but for the guilty. So you see, this was something new. Moses was a new kind of mediator. A man who asked God to save the ungodly, the unrighteous, the guilty. And so Moses interceded on behalf of the wicked, not the righteous. The intercession then had to be entirely based on God's character, not the merits of the people, not even the merits of a small remnant of people, but entirely on God's mercy. And so when Moses finished interceding, Scripture tells us the Lord relented From the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. What else could he do? (laughs) Moses was appealing based on God's love. Based on his promises. Based on his glory. Based on his mercy. And his faithfulness. And since this appeal was based on God's character. You see Moses was not trying to talk God into doing something that he normally wouldn't do. He was telling God exactly what God wanted to hear. And in the end, God did what he had intended to do. From the beginning, he answered the prayer of the mediator whom he had appointed by saving the people whom he had chosen from all eternity. If you think about it, this is really our story as well. This is really our story of salvation. God up on His holy mountain. We're down here on earth. And like the Israelites, we are floundering in the foolishness, in the folly of our own rebellion against God. Our own idolatry leads to immorality. And what we need is someone like Moses. We need someone to come down and intercede for us. Someone who can turn away God's wrath. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that we need to preach. That's the message that we need to intercede for others to hear. God has given us a mediator. When he saw our sin, he wanted to save us. So he sent his son to intercede for our salvation. You know this. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's as as if God said, go down, Jesus, go down. (coughs) Go down because your people, the ones that I gave you from all eternity, have become corrupt. They are living in sin. They have turned away from my law to worship other gods. And unless you intercede for them, they will surely be destroyed by my wrath. And Jesus did come down. He said, save them, father, save my people, because they are not just my people, but they are your people. So even similar to Moses, Jesus is saying, God, these are your people through the covenant. Through your promise. Save them because I died on the cross for their sins. And we dare not waste my precious blood. Save them because it will bring glory to your name. Save them because you delight to show mercy. Save them because you have promised to save them in the covenant. That you made before the world began. This is the way that Jesus prays for us. You know, the scripture tells us Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the father interceding for us. And Jesus does not plead on the basis of our own righteousness, but on the merits of his own saving work. Scripture tells us that if we sin, we have one who speaks to the father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So as fellow believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to intercede for others. We are called to get down on our knees and pray for sinners. We are called to intercede for people who don't know Jesus We're called to pray for the people who do know Jesus but have fallen into sin. And when we pray, I think we've got a pretty good model in Moses of how to pray. We appeal to God on the basis of their identity as God's people, chosen and redeemed. And when we see someone caught in sin, we ask God to not waste the work he's already done in their lives to rescue them we pray and appeal to god's honor we ask god to save people and keep on saving them so that others will see his glory as these people's lives are transformed we appeal to his merciful compassion to the undeserved favor that he shows to sinners And we appeal to God in our prayers, in our intercession on the basis of his covenant, his eternal promise to save sinners in Christ. This is our prayer calling as Christians to pray for sinners the way that Moses prayed for Israel and the way that Jesus prays for us. You know, we don't enter the throne room claiming our own blood, our own perfect righteousness. We claim the righteousness of Christ for the sake of the unrighteous. And for that reason, for that reason, we can pray boldly. We can surrender completely. Ask, ask, ask. And see what God will do. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come to you and, and we ask for your forgiveness. Knowing that many times we have been too lazy, too fearful, too busy, maybe too, pos- too cautious to dare pray to you to, lift, to intercede. Lord, we I confess, I don't understand. We don't understand your mighty works. There are reasons that are unfathomable to us. Not all sick people get better. Not all the lost people that we pray for put their faith in you. For reasons unknown to us, these may not be in your perfect will. But Father, do not let this be an excuse in our lives for not praying. May we be a church filled with love, Father. May we express that love through intercession, believing that you hear us for Christ's sake. That you can do more than we can ever imagine. And that we know from moses's prayer lord for your own name's sake you relented and so we come with confidence that you will listen to our prayers and you will answer us in christ jesus name we pray amen